This is a production from The Companion. Sci-fi served fresh. Welcome to The Companion Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Cow, and this is my co-host, Rebecca Davis. Hello, Rebecca. Hi, Lawrence. Um, I'm really excited for this episode. Uh, It really predates me not only as a producer here, but even as a member. Yeah, that's right. It was um, actually the first ever event at the Companion. In fact, the original AMA Brad was going to do was a typing AMA. He mentioned he had very fast fingers when it comes to (laughs) typing, you know, from writing all those screenplays, I'm sure. Um, And so... I think he was let down a little bit when we said, why don't we do it as a video event instead? I love this AMA, but with all AMAs, it's really up to the audience to ask questions. But I know you are a fan and you know Brad really well. What's the one question or piece of advice that you could share before we get into the other interesting questions in this AMA that Brad gave to you? I do get a chance to speak to Brad from time to time. And when I do, I do ask Brad for advice. Uh, it could be in writing or, you know, running one of these kind of events or business advice for the companion. The one advice that I always come back to that Brad gave me, and I think he actually gave it to some of the other team members as well, is that don't put a hat on a hat. You know, so if we're doing a pretty cool event or creating a cool piece of content, sometimes just let that be it. You don't need another surprise or another introduction So that begs the question, Rebecca, is this intro right now a hat on a hat? No, 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 no. This is this is the feather in the hat. Right. So with that lesson learned, this is me introducing Rebecca Davis, introducing me, introducing (laughs) Brad's AMA. Go, Rebecca. Enjoy. Good morning to some, good evening to others. Um, Thanks so much for joining. Uh, Obviously, we have Brad here. Uh, He needs no introduction. Um, You can ask him anything. Tips on writing, producing, Stargate, Travelers, Outer Limits, Early Career. You can even ask him about other films and shows because he's just a huge sci-fi fan. He's been in the business for three decades. And and yeah, the only rule, there's only one rule, please don't spam. Spam is a uh, great for a plate, but bad for uh, a chat forum. So um, uh, we'll get to as many questions as possible. Um, and in the meantime, as you guys start asking questions now, actually lots of members started um, like emailing a couple of days ago and also when they registered. So we'll get through some of those questions first as it builds up. But Brad first. Can, can, I, can I say something that uh, I know is going to be a question? I just want to say that... Uh, Uh, I know a lot of people are going to ask about a new Stargate project. And the fact is, I just want everybody to know that MGM MGM and I are working on something. Uh, It's just too early to talk about. And uh, and, uh, it's partly too early because there's a pandemic going on. Uh, And that's kind of ground a few things to a a halt. But uh, but we are working on something. It's very exciting. It's something that uh, that that. that we've been talking about for, for a while now. And uh, I love it. I'm excited to, to, to have the possibility of making it someday soon or someday period. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, it's, I'll say this much. I'll say that um, 
it, it exists in the universe that, that you already know. Uh, it's not, uh, it's not a reboot. It's not a completely new thing. It's uh, a continuation. And I'll leave it at that. I'm not allowed to say. <laughs> we want to hear, Brad. So we want to hear. <laughs> Good. Good. Everybody's just going offline now, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, all we're I want done. to know. We're done. We've done our job. <laughs> AMA. Thanks, guys. <laughs> oh, wow. That's exciting. It's exciting. I don't know if I'm going to see if there's any, you know, what's going on in the chat here, but hopefully. Okay, go people, ahead. People uh, are loving that. Um, I'm seeing lots of woos, lots of Woo! claps. Thank yous. Well dones. We need more Stargates. That's what's happening. Uh, that's awesome. Oh, great news. What a way to kick off the yeah. AMA. All right. So, um, yeah, let's get to some, let's get to some questions now. It's like, okay. You now, um, the first question comes from Christoph Collada. Um, and it's just a simple one. What are some of your favorite sci-fi books, Brad? Favorite sci-fi books. Oh, wow. Um, I started reading, uh, sci-fi when I was like in my early teens and, uh, and I really, I, it's just, I read all of Isaac Asimov. I read all of, as much Fred Saberhagen as I could get my hands on. And, and it was funny because it was because of, um, uh, of the time, I just thought there would be an infinite amount of, of classic sci-fi out there, but there isn't, you know, there's a ton of it, but, but the stuff that's magnificent, um, you can kind of burn through it in, 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 a, in a, in a lifetime. And, um, but so now I love Scalzi. Uh, John is a, is a great writer. Uh, we're kind of cut from the same cloth of not being able to write something that doesn't have humor in it, but I love hard science fiction. I love, I love like the hardcore stuff. If you read my, my essay, I, I, I love fantasy too. Lord of the Rings was like epic when I was 12 years old and I read that, you know, all three volumes and, you know, cried when Gandalf fell and my brother at dinner said, don't worry about it. He's going to be okay. And I got really mad at him for the spoiler. Mainly I love sci-fi and I love, I love space opera. I love military sci-fi. I love writing military sci-fi. I, I don't know why. Uh, maybe it's, it, it was well predated uh, Stargate SG-1 that I had this uh, affection for um, uh, military fiction too. Not that I'm, you know, hugely into war. It's just that it has such, such an impact on, on humanity and, and on the, the creation of civilization that it's impossible to ignore as a, you know, as a, as a thing that happens in the world and, and it has always happened in humanity. It's just, it's just what happens when people stop talking, you know? And, uh, and, and I love uh, science fiction set in the, in the distant future. I'm trying to remember the name of the, uh, of that book <laughs> that I just read. British author. Brilliant. It's about spiders that evolve uh, meeting humans for the first time. It's, it's brilliant. And somebody should tell me. Somebody, somebody, remember it and tell me. Yeah, because it's really popular. Well, when too. you remember, we'll we'll tweet it out later. So okay, good idea. So we'll get good it. Idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, you you speaking of Scalzi, um, uh, one of the other members had asked uh, Ian Zania. He he was asking, uh, what role did John Scalzi play, and what were some of um, his notable con contributions? Uh, you know, in Stargate Universe. Okay, so so. Um... John, John, what he did was he, he, he was at home and we, I met him, we met him once we flew him out, we had a meeting, but what he did was he would read a script once, once I thought it was in good enough shape to share. And he read it from the, from a science perspective and, and from a, because with SG, we were trying to be more accurate, you know, my penchant for trying to be a little more accurate in terms of science and science fiction was, uh, was getting more serious and john is a smart man and his and uh his knowledge is encyclopedic i mean he, he would read the scripts and and say you know you can't 
possibly do that in that much time if we were talking about a you know a, a flight at a certain speed to he's just smart and uh, but also he's also very creative so he would talk about character and and uh as as well but mainly he was our science fiction consultant and and uh i i i loved getting his insights and 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 it's funny i i said uh in my essay too um I'm always just a little bit embarrassed uh, when I talk to uh, uh, real scientists about science fiction, especially my science fiction, because, you know, you, you start talking about, and it happened with John, you start talking about a structure in, in, in the, that, that, that was visible after the Big Bang that indicated that something happened before the Big Bang, uh, evidence of, uh, of life before life was possible to exist. And... Uh, and I remember getting the email and him going, wow, heady stuff, man. <laughs> and, and thinking and thinking to myself um, and, and being a little bit embarrassed because I knew that he understood this stuff much, much more than I do. But but he, he completely got it and completely, uh, completely helped us form that that part of the story. It was great. We got another question. This one um, came from a, a Twitter member, uh, SGC Gate, uh, and they wanted to know. Uh, who are your heroes in the f uh, field of writing, acting, directing, and how do they influence your career? So kind of maybe even related to the last question as well. I don't have any immediate heroes. Like, I mean, I have filmmakers that I love. I mean, who doesn't love Steven Spielberg? Uh, uh, you know, and I loved, I loved early Lucas. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I worry about, um, you know, having heroes because because people's careers ebb and flow. Uh, I think Aaron Sorkin is is among the greatest writers ever, and he doesn't do science fiction, but he but his dialogue is so unbelievable and so captures real people. So I I'm you know I lean toward that kind of thing. Uh, I mean I I could go way back to Frank, Frank Capra. I love Frank Capra stuff, and and uh, and it's you know that's incredibly old stuff, but but capturing humanity. Films and, and, and actors and writers and directors who can capture, you know, it's, I'm not inventing this term, but I, uh, something with heart, something that, that is, uh, has an element of heart in it. Uh, and it could be, you know, it could be It's a Wonderful Life. It could be Aliens. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Aliens is full, is, is got that great stay away from her you bitch moment that is, that is, you know, technical and incredible and, and powerful, but it's driven by, you know, a heart, this, this protective instinct. And, and, uh, so I, I would have to include, uh, actually, uh, aliens in that. I, it, it's that film that when it's on TV, I can't not watch it. And, uh, it's, it, it's just, every scene is perfect to me. Yeah. I, I call them. I call those take you along for the ride films where you accidentally get yeah. on the channel and it takes you on for a ride and then you're on it. Yeah. Groundhog day is like that. You know, you, you, right, you, right. you're, you're watching, you're watching TV and Oh Jesus, Bill Murray and groundhog day. I have to watch a few minutes of this. And you know, no matter where you are in the, in the movie, you want, you know, you go, I gotta go to bed. You turn it off. But yeah, it's, um, it, you know, it's, it's funny because sometimes it's, it's, it's Stargate and, you know, I'll be in my little gym doing, my lamish sort of exercises and, um, and, and I'll be flipping and there'll, there'll, there'll be an episode of Stargate and it'll be, Oh God. Yeah. I remember doing that. I remember when Andy shot that and, Oh man, that's, and, and it's funny because I, most people watch the episode. I watch that part of my life. 
when I see that episode, where I was, you know, where, where the director was uh, in his career or her career. So it actually takes you back to set and takes you back to that moment rather than seeing the, the story on screen. It, yes, it, it does. It takes me, it takes me to great example, uh, uh, 2010. Andy Makita directed it. The last act of that episode came out of my computer. I mean, I, I felt like I typed it in real time. And it didn't change at all. I mean, basically what I wrote in that moment. And then Andy and Andy came in with this amazing way of shooting it and concept of shooting it. And it, it was, if not his first episode that he directed, it was one of them. Uh, and and it, it just made me go, oh, man, that was a great decision you know, hiring Andy as a director get up because he had worked with us for so many years as a, as a production manager and then as a producer and, 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 uh, as a first AD, I mean, early in Stargate. Uh, and so when he, when, you know, when he took off and, and directed 2010, as well as he did, it, it blew me away. And, you know, like music cues, I can't not watch the ending of, uh, of, uh, SGU. Well, the last episode's not really an ending. It, although to me, it feels like an ending now. But Joel's final piece, his that final piece of music that he wrote for that episode is just so good. Another question, I guess, on on writing. Um, this is from Leslie Ann K. Um, what does your usual writing process look like? Are you an outline guy? Uh, do you write sequentially? Do you just tackle each scene um, as you're ready for it? I don't recommend my writing process to anyone. <laughs> uh, of course, of course I used to outline because uh, uh, you had to, I was, when I was newer and younger, people had to see, to see your, your, uh, your outline. But, but honestly, for me, the outline process is, takes as long as the, the script process. Uh, and, and it's less informative to me as a writer. I'm not a plotter. I don't, I don't think of the whole story ahead of time. I can't. Uh, I mean, I, I have and I do. Uh, I have had to when I've had to. But I, I am much better as a writer when when I'm uh, when when I'm in a scene. I know I know what the scene should feel like. I know what the characters' goals and intentions are. But I don't really know what the scene is going to be until I until I get at it. Until I, until the one character says something, and then I and I go, oh, this person should say this and. And the the for me the process of discovery is is way way better. Um, to give you an example, in the pilot of Travelers, I don't think this is too much of a spoiler. <laughs> if you haven't seen Travelers yet, you should. But um, uh, in the pilot of uh, of Travelers, I hadn't decided if the the cop character was going to die. I, I, I thought he might end up being a recurring character. And in that scene, as I was typing, as Phil as he chases. Philip down the alley and, 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 you know, he's, I thought, geez, what if he has a, a, a heart attack right in that moment? And, you know, and, and Philip knows it's going to happen. He just didn't know he was going to be there for the heart attack or that he was going to be the cause of that heart attack. And I thought, well, maybe he'll, maybe he'll get over them. And that, and I thought, what a perfect way of, of uh, encapsulating a, a, a protocol, not just don't take a life, but don't save a life, which is protocol something three and um and so gower gower is chasing him uh philip down this this uh, alleyway and in that moment I, I i i i decided that was the scene and it and, and it ended up being way more powerful than than and i ended up discovering that 
by writing the script. And I don't think I would have got there in an outline. I think I would have, you know, because I wasn't in the moment with the characters, I think I would have, the outline would have just said, achieve the story beat I was trying to achieve. And I would have moved on and, and Gower may not have died in that moment, which was a very, I think a, a, one of the best scenes in the, um, in the episode and, and that, and so, but having said that, you can't run a show that way. And, and so in our writer's room on Stargate, um, we had a big, and, and in travelers in every writer's room I've ever been in, uh, the way I like to do it is to, is to put up a big whiteboard and you, and you put the beats that you, that, you know, okay. Cause somebody always comes in with a core idea. What if this happens? Um, yeah. I'll use SGU for an example. Uh, what if what if uh, destiny is hurtling toward a star, and you think, "Oh shit, we're all going to die because it's powered down and it's out of power," and oh, that was a bad thing to happen. But what if that's how destiny uh, gets its power? What if it's truly solar powered? Because I I was realizing that if it was on a journey as long as it is, it had to replenish its power. There's no such thing as an infinite power source in that. In that moment, the, the uh, you come in with that idea, and and well, what do you do with everybody else? And so you put the beat you know on the whiteboard, and and uh, and then all of you as a as a writing team sit down and you fill in the holes, like you five acts of, of story, and and you put in the beat you know, uh, you know, you, hopefully you know you have an idea of how it's going to end. You put that down. You have an idea of what the tease is going to be, how the show opens. You put that down, and you and you basically fill in the blanks. As a group, throwing out ideas, building on what is already on the whiteboard, sometimes taking the eraser and wiping it away again, which is important. Um, and uh, and then realizing, oh, that doesn't get to that or this doesn't make sense at all. But 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 that's what a writer's room is. The writer's room is is beyond just the original spinning and, and spitballing and throwing ideas around. Um, it, it's putting it up on the whiteboard. And, and I'll do that. I do that for my own stuff too with, with, but, but I, but I, what I really like to do is, is to, is to be minimal to at least give myself for myself. Uh, this is when you're making a show, uh, an idea of structure without committing to it completely. Uh, when I'm creating a new show, when I'm, when I'm uh, writing a, a pilot, I, I just, I just start writing and, and I don't recommend that to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's just, I've been, I've, I've written so much, so many hours of television. It's just, that that's the way it works for me. And um, so that's what I do. Is, uh, was there actually a moment maybe where, I mean, you've been, you're obviously a huge veteran, so, so you probably have structure and, and ideas down pat, but maybe for younger writers or maybe when you were a younger <laughs> self, there, there, maybe there was a moment you crossed over. <laughs> Like I, I, I don't, I, I'm the one, and when I'm the showrunner and I, and I've only been the showrunner lately <laughs> for the last 20 <laughs> years or so. And, and, uh, I have that privilege, but, but I'm, you know, I can't just to, to a, a, a new young writer say, no, just go write it. Unless there's a, you know, an enormous amount of time and, and they, and they want to try that process. What it sets you up for though, uh, is the, is the, um, the knowledge that, um, that somebody may have a big note that changes everything and you may just have to throw away a giant chunk of what you've written. Uh, mm. uh, especially like at, at the, at the high level, if you've written something and, and they go, we love this and love this, but this, this whole ending is just not where we think it should go. Oh, well, I didn't write an outline. I'll just do a, a very heavy second draft and big rewrite. And that's just, you know, part of the course when you do it that way. 
Um, and uh, and then th- the other thing that happens if you have a lot of time is you, you'll 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 I'll write a version of a draft and I'll I'll just you know I'll finish it and it's just for me. I mean, it's not like I'm going to send it to anybody at the, at that point. And I'll wait like a weekend or or five six days and I'll read it again. And um, and I'll I'll go. What the hell was I thinking? <laughs> uh, and 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 immediately see what the solution. Sometimes see what the solution is. But my other thing that I do uh, when I when I as a as a thing that I'm and I'm not sure many people do this, and I don't think a novelist could. But I start on page one every time. So when I when I'm writing, I'll write to the you know sometimes I'll come up with a bunch of pages. The next day, I, I I go back to page one, and I and I and I read it and read it and read it. And because sometimes what you've written informs stuff earlier, and you can see ideas in, and, and it makes you seem much smarter than you actually are. Um, but uh, but no, I start on page one every time, which is why there are always more typos on the last page but also because when i'm in production if, if i type the end I, I immediately want somebody to read it and tell me uh whether it's uh, as good as i think it is or not um so i, I hold off on that moment as, as long as possible I, I again i don't recommend it <laughs> especially for young writers because structure is really important when you um wrote the rules of sci-fi for us did you use the same process where you start at paragraph one and then wrote and then kind of go back or is it, was it a different yes, process? Absolutely. That's a, that's a great example. When I wrote that essay, I, I, uh, I just started at the beginning and, and, and I would change it. It would be very fluid and a, and a little joke or thing that I thought was great yesterday. I would think I was, how stupid is that today? And, and, um, and yeah, that's, that's definitely how I do it. And then when I, of course, then when you get to the end and, and, and you uh, have to do another draft, you get notes from people. And sometimes it's uh, notes you have to do. Sometimes it's notes that you uh, that are just suggestions, and and um, and you have to you have to take those notes, and and you generally have fifty five pages of script, uh, and uh, and you have to somehow make that work without adding more material because you're you can't you can't write a sixty five page script. You can't shoot sixty five pages of script because every ten pages, every eight seven pages is is an entire shooting day which is 80, dollars $120,000 worth of production. So when you write 10 pages that, that you have to cut out, you've just pissed away a lot of money. So I, the, the goal is to write a script that is just long enough that in the editing room, when you're, when you're, when you're done, you have two, three, four minutes tops that you can shave off the episode to reach your program length or which was the beauty of working for Netflix. Uh, you can, you, you, uh, you can, you can shrink it or expand it to the size you want, but it's, it was always for me around um, 44 minutes of, of screen time for a, an episode. And, and uh, that in page count is around 51 pages, 52 pages for me. So when you, when you address somebody's note, which sometimes means adding something, you have to find stuff, stuff to take away. You have to, you know, you have to get rid of, Stuff. I actually had a writer, I won't say his name, who uh, I said, you're too long. And he went away. And this is really happened. He went away and he came back and, and I went, okay, I don't know how you did that so fast. And I read it again and I said, I don't see what you cut out. And he said, no, I, I just, I just uh, changed the margins. And I went, it doesn't <laughs> work that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
I thought you were going to say, I just deleted all the thes. <laughs> well, no, that, that would be hard to read. But um, he, he just changed, he altered the margins. And I, and I, uh, anyway. Arctic Goddess One uh, from Twitter asks, what ancient technology do you wish was real and that we could use in our daily lives now? I think a, a faster than light travel would, would solve an enormous amount of problems. Uh, yeah. I think we could explore. Uh, it really would. But with that would come anti-gravity. I mean, a- ancient technology as, uh, you know, in spaceships would, would be great. I think it would be, I think it would be wonderful. I think it would be really, really great if humanity could figure out a way to, uh, to travel faster than light and go to other worlds. That would be wonderful. Um, there's a lot of, uh, stumbling blocks to that. There's a lot of, a lot in the way in terms of real science. You can't just go faster. You know, you, you, you actually have to come up with a way of, of, of changing a fundamental law of the universe, altering it in a way that, that we haven't come up with yet. Uh, and even then you have to, you have to figure out, uh, how that gets around things like time dilation and, and, uh, and you have to come up with a power source for that. I mean, even if you came up with the science to make it happen, like like the uh, Albuquerque drive, uh, I think I pronounced that right. I'm not sure. Like warp drive, basically. Uh, you, you would, uh, you know, I, I don't think it, there's a dilithium crystal around that's going to do it. You know what I mean? We, uh, so that would be great, but uh, but it's it's a real big challenge, and and uh, I don't think I'll see that in my lifetime. It's a dream, though. It would be pretty cool. Um, all right, another Stargatey kind of question. Hunter Falk Burgess asks: Out of all the characters, worlds, and stories that we got to see in the Stargate franchise, uh, which ones would you want to revisit, and why? I always wanted to. <laughs> this is kind of funny. I was I, I always wanted to do another Ashen story. I liked the Ashen, like again, twenty ten. I just I thought that their plan was so insidious. <laughs> but Rob Cooper used to tease me about it because he he felt <laughs> that the long game that the Ashen played um, uh, was undramatic, inherently undramatic, uh, which is why it ended up playing well as a time travel story, because by the time we realized what their plan was, it was already too late. And the only solution was to, to find a way to send a message back and, and um, not meet them in the first place. Obviously I have a thing for time travel, but um, uh, I think Rob's joke was, uh, Oh my God! They stopped us from being able to grow corn, which was pretty funny. <laughs> at least it was for me in the, at the time. I killed myself. Uh, but uh, I thought I thought I could come up with another long game type story. I, I just there was something interesting uh, about a culture that that had that sense of superiority and and sense of the long game of well, you know, we'll we'll win. It'll just take a hundred years. I just yeah. thought that was so insidious. Um, and I only got two episodes in that world. And, um, but you know, there might've been a third out there. Uh, yeah, I'll stick with that answer. <laughs> oh yeah. No, the, the great, great. Characters. Oh, and the Knox. I would, I, I love the yeah. Knox. I thought the Knox were fun. Uh, they were, they were, they were so great, but, but again, they were who they were, who they, who they ultimately were in the, in the, in that episode, kind of precluded our ever seeing them again. It was like, oh, you're so young to us, you know, uh, of us. Like, you're not ready. You're just so not ready to to be our friends, you know? Um, we're going to try one more layer. We actually have a special guest for you, Brad, uh, an old friend who um, couldn't make it, 
uh, wanted to ask you a question as well. So we're going to cue that, okay. that up right now. Okay. Okay. A special guest. Okay. Hey, Brad, it's Narain Shankar, blast from your past. Um, so I got a question for you, man. Despite the enduring popularity of shows like The Twilight Zone and The Outer Limits, which I worked on with you many years ago, um, with few exceptions, you know, maybe notably Black Mirror, it seems like successful anthology series are few and far between these days. Do you think there's a place for anthologies in the current landscape of, you know, more novelistic television? Love to hear your thoughts. Love that guy. Uh, rain. hey! Uh... I think the reason anthology can come back and 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 has in the form of Black Mirror is because now you can you can uh, you're not dependent on the last episode to be able to air the next one. I think I think regular broadcast television made it difficult. I, the, I think the only one of the only reasons The Outer Limits managed to go as long as it did was uh, it was set up uh, with a, a literally a business relationship between MGM and, and, and Showtime. Uh, it was part of a larger deal. And so they knew uh, they were buying, uh, uh, to get access to MGM's library, uh, Showtime uh, also had X number of hours of, uh, of shows, like, like The Outer Limits, and uh, which Noreen and I had a great time working on together. Uh, it was so much fun. But he, 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 I think he's right uh, that that now might be the best time, and I, I would do that again in a heartbeat. As hard as it is, as hard as it is to do an anthology, and it really is, because it's like doing a pilot every week. You're, you, you know, when we were doing twenty-two episodes of The Outer Limits, we were casting twenty-two separate pilots, essentially twenty-two separate shows. Like everybody who came in uh, to be in that episode had to be had to be cast. You didn't have recurring characters and every set had to be new. There was no such thing as a standing set. So it was bloody difficult, but, um, but it's also so rewarding when, when you, when you, uh, when you do a, an anthology episode that, that stands alone and is fun and, and, and is solid. Uh, and, uh, and you have your dogs too. You're gonna, it's inevitable. You can't, it, there's, you don't have a, a recurring cast to fall back on. You don't have a, you know, a through line or a backbone that, that, that is the reason the show got bought in the first place. Like a, you know, like an Anuja Lacarta or a Tilka Daniel that you can depend to hold it together uh, for, because of their own strengths as characters and as actors. Uh, so it's risky. And I, and I think that's part of the reason anthology uh, has struggled. And, and I think uh, networks, tend to be risk averse, especially broadcast networks, because if you don't get an audience in your time slot um, for consecutive weeks, because the last one sucked and the next one wasn't that much better. Well, the next one's fabulous, but if you don't get the eyeballs on it, you're screwed. Whereas Black Mirror, it all, it all went up at once on Netflix. Everybody had the ability to, uh, if they didn't like it, watch, watch the next one. I watched them all. I thought it was terrific. I thought it was uh, very, very solid and incredibly well written, and and I and I think proved a point that uh, anthologies like The Outer Limits and The Twilight Zone uh, proved to a certain extent, and that is that uh, you can grasp the theme uh, uh, and make that the through line, uh, as opposed to sets and actors and 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 characters. Uh, and, and so that in a way, the audience is getting the same show because it is re 
uh, black, black mirror is a perfect example. Um, uh, it was a, a, a side of technology, a side of, of this technology, the black mirror. Took me a, like an episode or two to figure out that. Um, sadly, um, so yeah. Hey, Narain, if you if uh, you want to do an anthology at some point, let's do it. Uh, oh, that'd be probably. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I'd do the Outer Limits again. Uh, it, it was so much fun. Although I have to say this too, we did stuff on the Outer Limits uh, in terms of uh, sets and and. Uh, and stuff in general, in terms of visual effects that you could not get away with now in terms of sophistication of the audience. I did a show light brigade, uh, which was like season two, uh, almost a sequel to another episode that I had written in season one called quality of mercy, which was a, a bottle show. Um, one set, two actors saved a lot of money and, um, directed by Brad Turner, fabulous job. And Nikki DeBoer's in it and Robert Patrick. Uh, anyway, so I wanted to do a sequel of that uh, in that universe, essentially. And so at least I didn't have to build a whole new universe again. But it required the the building of a spaceship. And and because it was anthology, our per episode budget for sets was not super huge. Um, but Steve Gagan, the production designer at the time, and I had this had – this, um, what we used to do is I would write – and I do this to this day. I, I Before I write a story – before I commit to a story, I have conversations with the art department. Hey, hey, can we do this? Can we, can I build this? Can, what do you think, what stages would she, should we put it in? How would we achieve this? And, uh, and so we, you know, you, you can come up with ways of, of, of solving problems uh, with the art department, put it into your script and it, and it sounds like you're smart all, right off the top. But Steve, Steve had to, to, you know, have some shortcuts. And so the hatches, the actual hatches in the, in the, in the tunnels, which were gigantic cardboard sono tubes that we painted the inside of and put ladders in the hatches were actually garbage can lids, literal garbage can lids that were spray painted, which in a standard definition four by three looked fine in HD. You'd go, is that a garbage can lid? So, and same with visual effects, you know, you could do a matte painting or you could do a, you know, an optical, uh, and, and, you know, you wouldn't, couldn't tell it was a model, but in modern with, with modern, uh, 16 by nine with 4k, uh, yeah, you, you would see uh, that looks like a model or that looks like crap. And, and so the, the level of sophistication has, will have had to go up. I think black mirrors achieved that. I think that, um, the dogs in that episode were, were amazing. Um, but yeah, it, 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 that is the bar. I mean, you have to be really good in terms of your visual effects. And so embracing an, an anthology, especially the way we, I mean, we, we had, we were writing them, you know, we were writing scripts and we were shooting them weeks later, building the sets as we went along. I mean, that, that's insane. That that's the breakneck speed that we operated at, um, uh, for the outer limits, but, uh, I do it again because it was so much fun and so rewarding. And, and, you know, you meet these, you meet actors who, who want to do television because they don't have to commit to a whole series or multiple seasons. You know, they get to, they get to do a character for one episode. Um, We got, we got some pretty, some pretty decent folks to be in that show. I mean, uh, I got to meet some great, great talent and, uh, and it was great to work with them.
So, oh, so awesome. yes, Narain, I, yeah. I think it's possible. Let's, let's do it together. Uh, he's a really, really smart guy. He's so smart. <laughs> so throw, um, Scalzi into the mix as well. And you guys can, can, can yeah, science yeah. and anthology banter. <laughs> um, okay. So I think John, com- I we're going to jump I think into John the- would dig anthology. Yeah, I mean, he was he did um, some of the Love, Sex, and Robots, I think, right on Netflix. Um, yeah, yeah, there series. were some of yeah, there were his stories. Um, it, it's funny, you know, I I, I haven't. It's very different. Uh, screenwriting and and writing novels is a very different animal, and um, and you know, characters on a page have to exist more complete on a page in a novel, uh, and, whereas screenwriting, uh, the it's a marriage of the writing and, and the performer. You know, the, a character is not ever complete in a screenplay. That that last step, that really important step, is when a, an actor uh, breathes life into the into the character you've written, and and it becomes a partnership going forward. So when I write a pilot, sometimes it's a favorite actor, sometimes it's it's just a you know a, a random uh, voice I've generated in my own head. But as soon as you cast it, as soon as that role uh, is um, a real person. That voice takes over as you're as you're typing the character, uh, and that, I think that's another huge difference between writing for a screenplay and writing for a novel. I am writing Eric McCormack's voice for Travelers. I'm writing Richard Dean Anderson's voice for Stargate. Uh, Amanda Tapping, you know, you know their cadence, you know what they sound like, you know, uh, you know their rhythms, and so once that partnership gets good, and and once you you know, you've, you've hit the ground running. You know, they read the script and it sounds like their character to them. You know, they, they go, oh, this is me. And I know how to say this. Uh, part of that is, too, you know, in a read through, if they have a hard time, uh, like Rick hated long speeches, like like he, he had kind of a two finger rule. <laughs> and it's not because he didn't like memorize them. He just he just felt more real when when he had you know, shorter things to say. And I, and I, uh, and I, and I mean that, and I, he, you know, he was a, it was a consummate professional, but, but, but he just didn't think O'Neill should do long speeches. And so, and so, you know, that burden went to other people, obviously. But um, as far as travelers are concerned, I actually wrote with Eric McCormack's voice in my head for the character hoping that I might be able to get him because I knew he was Canadian and I wanted this to be a Canadian show. And because I'd worked with him before, uh, but I didn't really think I'd be able to get him. Uh, it might be because I wrote it with him in my head, though, that I did get him because he read the script and went, uh, "Wow, yeah, I could. This is, this is something I could do. I, I, this speaks to me." Uh, Patrick Gilmore, who plays David, I, I actually literally wrote the part for him, knowing I could get him into audition. And so, and so during the auditions, uh, it was he went straight to callbacks during the auditions. Um, I hadn't seen him in a couple of years, like five or six years, actually. And uh, he was sitting in his car uh, as, as I walked out of mine uh, to go into the uh, uh, casting studio with Maureen Webb, who is a brilliant casting director. And, uh, and, and so he sees me and he waves and I, and I, and he rolls down the window and go, Hey Patrick, how's it going? And he goes, Hey Brad, oh, it's a long time. No see. And I said, by the way, uh, I have to go in, but just so you know, I wrote this part for you. So don't fuck it up. <laughs> and he went you wrote it for me and i went yeah yeah, yeah. It, it's 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 you can't really screw this up i promise uh and and uh, sure enough uh he hit it out of the park as i knew he would all right there's a lot of uh comments coming there's not even a question but there's a lot of comments in the chats 
and they're wondering what's going on. Who are the cats in the background? And maybe describe oh. your office. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So this is uh, this is Lulu. This is this is a, a cat that uh, that we got from my daughter Kayla when she was like five. And Lulu uh, just passed a few years ago, uh, and she was uh, she was a lovely cat, and actually went off to live with my daughter uh, when my daughter went off to university. This is oh, this is Napan. Where is it? Over the other way. This is Napanee. Uh, Napanee was our first cat. And, and then in the middle, I'll get out of the way. In the middle, that's Boo. That was our dog. Uh, uh, a golden retriever lab cross uh, who uh, was with us for 15 years and has been gone for about five. But my wife, uh, for a few Christmases in a row, had those made for me. And, uh, and I just love them. So they're in my office. Very cool. Very cool. I'm gonna quickly yeah. scroll through some. More, it's so funny uh, that the cat picture behind me—it's—it's. It's, uh, they're great. I love them. Uh, here's an interesting question from uh, Words or Magic to me. One, uh, the question is: As a professional biologist, I'm curious how much thought and research goes into the biology of planets and aliens that appear in the shows. Well, as a biologist, you are well aware that most planets we would go to. Uh, we would uh, probably die. <laughs> we, I mean, I, I started making jokes in SG1 where uh, uh, there were so many trees uh, uh, and so many planets. It was like Johnny Appleseed uh, went out into the universe. But um, uh, we have to shoot on Earth, uh, and so that's that's our limitation. Uh, I mean, as a as a, I think that the. the the tougher question is, why is everyone speaking English? <laughs> which, you know, at least Star Trek had the universal translator, which which was their, their answer. Um, uh, for Stargate, we we just we it would be such a barrier. Um, we just hoped that that uh, that the audience would accept it as a as a conceit, just like just like they accept gravity on spaceships, because I, it's very difficult to do. Uh, anti-gravity. Uh, the only person I think who did it, Ron Howard did it in Apollo 13 by building a set inside the Vomit Comet, which is a, a DC-10. He built a set inside a DC-10 and they did parabolas. Um, but in, back to the biology question. It is true that uh, that all the planets we go to uh, seem to have uh, perfectly breathable air. and uh, But maybe that's why the ancients put stargates there. That was our answer, uh, and and sometimes it it it, it came. We, we got story out of it. For example, uh, the Eratus bug uh, in in the Pegasus Galaxy uh, is a creature uh, that ultimately we wanted to plant as something that was fundamental to what the wraith became. But it's it, we, it was also a bit of a barrier because of course there would be there would be uh, uh, indigenous life right uh, we did an episode called bane that robert uh, wrote that was that was essentially about an indigenous life form that uh, that almost killed tilk changing the biology of a planet or 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 changing or go, going to an, a foreign planet uh, unless that was about the story it was incredibly difficult um, uh, from a from a technical perspective we tried things we tried uh, to change like the color of plants, like just in color correct. And just, and just, uh, you know, I mean, Star Trek just made the sky red because it was a psych, right? It was a giant 
it was the back wall of this of the of the studio lit red uh, um and and we just never found uh, or rarely did we find um creatures or 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 things that unless it became integral to the story for example i did an episode called uh, cloverdale in season two yeah i think it's a season two episode of sgu uh and and it and I, I realized I couldn't I, I couldn't afford in a million years to do the whole episode in the and the defending the gate aspect of the story because those creatures those plants essentially were so expensive because uh, every every frame of of those scenes were uh, where they existed was CG and so I think I, I think maybe it would be easier now to create. Uh, uh, planets uh, where there was a different biology, and, and especially since the world, the shooting world, has changed. Uh, an alien planet twenty years ago in Stargate was driving out into the forest. You know, we 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 the the big problem was we couldn't see buildings, we couldn't see power lines. We it had to be, you know, we shot in a lot of gravel pits. But now the city has grown so much that. Uh, you'd have to go out of the zone, which is like a, you know, a place where you can legally and, and morally ask a crew member to drive in their car to a location uh, within a, you know, a shooting day. Otherwise you're, you know, really risking people's lives by making them work 12 hours and then drive an hour and a half on the other side. Uh, and so since the city has grown so beyond the zone, uh, uh, alien planets uh, have to be in studio in green screen and, and in uh, coves. Um so, so you know that kind of thing, that kind of storytelling about biology, uh, different biologies, w- w- would be more available to us. It, it, you know, in the, you know what? We get to do it again. Yeah. Speaking of that, um, there is a couple of comments I'm seeing here. It wasn't necessarily com- directly related to green screens, but I'm going to find them here. It's more um, around the volume walls, like in the Mandalorian, and uh, effectively those giant oh, I- LED. Yeah. What do you think about those? I would love to. Oh, I mean, as soon as I, I read about those, I I, uh, I, I sent the link to uh, to a couple of friends like uh, Carrie Mudd, my producing partner on Travelers. I, I, I said, uh, we need to do the, we need we need these. We need to, to shoot something on these. I said, uh, Joe Malazzi, I said the same thing because uh, I mean. You have to do it all beforehand. I mean, all the CG, the world, the the, the has to be created beforehand but the the benefits of being able to shoot uh, actors in front of an environment that that looks photoreal uh um to be able to light them without worrying about green spill uh for them to be able to see the thing they're re- reacting to i mean it's it's man telling an actor that you know they're they're actually responding to a, a little a little silver ball on the end of a stick that looks like this, you know, that's that a visual effects coordinator is holding up and, and that's the monster's head. So, you know, depending on the actor, they go, really? <laughs> uh, or they're looking at the, the window of their spaceship and, uh, 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 you know, and, uh, you know, and they're firing weapons and, and, you know, they're banking left and right. And there ain't nothing out there. You know, there's the guy holding a, a little ball saying, this is, you know, this is where your eyeline should go. What the Mandalorian has is the ability for the actor in real time to see. Oh my God, I, that's what I'm responding to. If I'd only known. It's funny when it, when uh, when you do science fiction and you bring, and you do a screening, and I like to do that. I like uh, I like to do to screen episodes for for the cast. Uh, if you're lucky enough to be finished an episode or two before you wrap, 
and say, you know what, let's let's get a little uh, a gathering and, and watch one of these. You should all be very proud of it. We did it for every one of our pilots. We'd, we'd have the whole crew and and do a screening for them. And, and you know, for the actors to, to see finally what that visual effect is, you know, uh, uh, that, that they were imagining three months earlier or four months earlier. It's, 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 uh, that would be the huge advantage to the Mandalorian style, uh, that all that led wall. I, I can only imagine though, that they're really expensive right now. And you, you would need to have a lot of faith that your show is going to go a very long time in order to not make that kind of investment. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know if anything like that exists in Canada yet. I, I I'm, I'm fairly confident though, that it will soon and it's the way to go. And I, I would also, so suggest that it's probably not going to be, you know, the way it is for everything. Um, I mean, if you look at uh, Endgame, Avengers, the Avengers movie, I mean, there was so much CG in that. I mean, that that, that and so much, so much scope to it. I don't I don't think uh, an LED wall could even work for something like that big. But I don't know. I would love to have one of those to play with. <laughs> <laughs> Ian. Uh, Zania, he asked. Uh, I have some cool. I've seen some cool concept art uh, for an Atlantis DHD that was quite different from the kind of like SG one style DHD. And what was the ultimate reason for going with that, which is essentially like a same DHD off world uh, for the off world gates, uh, while keeping the decidedly cooler DHD for Atlantis control room and, and the puddle jumpers. It becomes a it becomes an art department thing. It becomes a design aesthetic. The one thing that I wanted, I don't know, I mean, decidedly cooler. We wanted the uh, the puddle jumper should have had, had to have its own DHD built in, right? So it had to be part of that control panel. I really wanted uh, always uh, uh, in uh, SG-1 Atlantis, SGU, and going forward for there to be a unique Stargate as well. Uh, I think that I think that the Atlantis gate has a digital quality, uh, and, and so it seems more. Uh, you know, advanced. Keep in mind that Atlantis could have existed uh, and evolved and, and grown uh, after long after it left. But um, but we wanted it to have a different look, a different color, so that so that you knew just by looking at the icon of the Stargate. Oh, this is an Atlantis episode. Oh, this is um, this is SGU. Um, and the design of the Destiny itself, we struggled with that, and it, it, it's literally one of those drawing on a napkin stories. Uh, I just literally, I sketched, was sketching shapes and I, and I was looking at a chevron and kind of elongated it and, and sent literally that chevron shape to, uh, to James, our, uh, our, our designer. And, and, uh, he made it real from there, but, but the destiny itself is, is, is an evolution of the Stargate shape. Uh, we just wanted each show to have a visual, uh, template, all of its own unique to it. And, uh, and that's really the core reason for that difference. I got another technical question from Ibrahim Saeed. Um, he asked, what are some of the strategies that you use to stage scenes and fast moving productions? But before you answer quick side note, um, when we spoke to, um, the VFX supervisor, John Gadecki. Uh, he told us that he would previs everything with Fisher Price figures. Is that also right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. John used sometimes Lego little Lego guys to uh, in previs. Uh, uh, and it, I mean, previs is great. Previs is in fact what uh, what uh, what they do in the Mandalorian. It's just that they take the previs all the way to 
to photo real. Uh, it, it, and then they they project it. I mean, that's basically what you're doing. You're, you're, you're doing something before you even shoot the thing. So, you know, you know, okay, roughly this is what, so, I mean, John's, John's uh, figures were sometimes hilarious because he would write the name on their little chest on their little Lego chest. And he would, and, and, uh, and uh, so you knew who was, who was who, but it helps with things like access, like which direction, which direction is the ship flying, which uh, is, is it, you know, if they, if they're coming through the Stargate left to right, then they have to, on the CG shot, they have to come out of it left to right, stuff like that. Otherwise it, it crosses the axis. And we were much more in those days uh, concerned with stuff like that than we are now. But I get, I've already sort of said some of it in terms of dealing with the art department. I'm, I'm a big, big, big believer in, in prep. So uh, I, you hear horror stories about shows where the uh, the production doesn't get the script until you know way late, and the, the actors have no, you know they get new pages you know the night before shooting, and and they're building props and and, and sets you know that the paint is still wet when they um, when they when they step on stage, and and that to me is a unfair to the crew, um, b it it burns money, uh, and 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 and. And see, it's it's just it's just inefficient. Uh, and so, the more planning you can have uh, in advance, the better. So much so that, and this this started happening uh, with the Outer Limits, and then uh, with Richard Udolan on on Stargate, and with every production designer and art department that I've worked with since. It especially in science fiction. Uh, what's the, the the line I like when one of my uh, Builders uh, said, there's no drywall in space, which means that all the shapes that these designers come up with, they're all unique. There's, you know, there's very rarely a square room in a spaceship that is, you know, just simple. Uh, they all have angles. They all have structure. They have depth, you know, and um, and the more of that, usually the better. So, so, uh, so when you build a swing set, which is a set that's only going to appear in one episode or two, um, it's really nice when you can um, use it over and over again. In SG-1, we, we had this benefit of having the available to us what it's gone now, but it was at the time the largest uh, soundstage in North America. It wasn't a soundstage. It was an effect stage, meaning that whenever a train went by, you could hear it and you'd have to stop. And so poor actors were, you know, you'd get a scene where, you know, Amanda Tapping or, or Jewel State is, you know, or anybody's doing this great scene that's, you know, rich in emotion. And, and you know, the sound guy goes, pause for a sec. And you hear a train go by and they're holding their emotion and they have to keep acting. That's People who don't think acting is really hard, they should see somebody in that situation. Um, but we had this, we had this gigantic sound uh, effect stage uh, and, and we built a village. We built an entire village uh that that could because as i said even then we were losing places that we could that we could um, go to and and turn around and make it look like it could be an alien thing you know and 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 because there were all there seemed to be always humans wherever we went uh we we and we were building these sets and using them once like uh, richard built this fabulous thing first an episode called spirits and it was it was just hugely expensive and it was used in one episode so we we started coming up with ways where we could use a set multiple times, multiple ways. And um, uh, of course that was, the village was almost a failed experiment because uh, I, I, I thought I was being really smart, but what I didn't realize is how expensive it was going to be to light the damn thing. 
uh, because you build something that big and, and you build it indoors. Uh, and then if you want to try to do daylight, you have to bring in so much light. And, and, and you know, we, were in, we made our show look more, I think, more expensive uh, than, than we, our budget really had uh, by knowing we were going to be there a long time. I mean, we had before the end of season one, we, renew, we knew we were doing 88 episodes. And before the end of season two, we were doing, we were doing five seasons. That allowed us to to invest in stuff uh, that you would not otherwise do as a television show because you might get canceled in two weeks. So you rent everything. And that doesn't suggest that we bought lights because uh, that doesn't make any sense either because you're really buying the bulbs. <laughs> and those things are the real price. And so you rent stuff like that. Uh, but, but, you know, you build things that you know you're going to use again and again. At one point we had... Uh, between Atlantis and talk about efficiencies. We, at one point we were producing Stargate SG-1 and Stargate Atlantis in the same offices with the same writing staff, with the same uh, production design team. We, we, had, we had two designers, and but they were working at one designer, two art directors working out of the same office. And, and that made sense so that we could have those efficiencies so that we could use our nine sound stages and build something that was going to be X in one episode and Y in it, for SG-1 and, and Y in Atlantis. And, and, uh, and because our designers were so good, you rarely saw, you could see, I could see, but it, it, you could, at least it, we, you know, there was a difference between uh, planet A and planet B. Um, and, and then Joe did a really smart thing in the village. He, he did an episode called Whispers and we fogged the whole damn thing up and you couldn't, oh, right. you, you could see the structure and, and, and it, it was terrific. It was like another use of that place that, uh, well, that Brad, we would have um, seen. Um, speaking of Joe, he's going to be our second special guest and he's actually queued up right now and he's been waiting in this virtual backstage. So we're going to see if we can actually oh, bring him hello. in. He might bring me out just in case. <laughs> hello. I, you hey, know, Joe. I was... I was listening to you talk about the efficiencies of producing Stargate. And frankly, you know, you sound like me or I, I sound like you, because whenever I do an interview, I talk about dark matter and the fact that you hear horror stories about other productions writing outlines on, on, on napkins or getting scripts the night before. And I always tell people, you know, the reason dark matter was such a pleasant set and everyone was happy to be there uh, was because we prepared. And the reason we were able to prepare is because I learned it from you and Rob on Stargate. The fact that, you know, if you're efficient, um, it just makes life easier on everyone and the money ends up on screen. Um, and it, you know, just listen to you talk about that made me, made me smile. So, uh, you know, well, great. I remember you visiting the Dark Matter set and I introduced you as my mentor. And I remember you laughing it off, but but it is true. I mean, the reason Dark Matter turned out as 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 great as it was, and it has its its fan base, is because of everything I learned working under you on Stargate. Well, that's great, Joe, and and it's great that uh, it's great that Dark Matter did so great and looked great, by the way. Thank it you. Was, uh, Thank you. It was a great show. It's a shame I, it didn't continue. We both got the three-season curse. <laughs> I got it with Travelers and you got it with Dark Matter. We did. We did. Oh, well. But uh, I, came, I came armed with two questions. Now, uh, forgive me, I'm late to, to, the, to the chat, so in case someone has asked it, I'll move on. But, you know, I would like to know what Briefs. was... Briefs. Yes, okay, so basically I only have one question then. 
Um, what, was the, what, what, was, what was your most challenging episode to produce and why in your, the span of your career? Uh, okay, I can think of two. And I don't mean challenging, but just downright bloody scary. Do you remember the, do you remember the episode uh, on the planet with the, with the, with the Cirque du Soleil mimes? That yes, that, that was before uh, my time. What, what, what we realized was that in the, in the, uh, that we were putting, where we shot it, which was out in a place called uh, Stokes Pit, which is gone now, by the way. It's just buildings, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm sure you lament, Joe. Uh, 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 we were putting these people uh, that were dressed in virtually nothing but makeup uh, outside uh, in temperatures that were pretty much zero and asking them to act uh, and, and uh, act in an alien sort of way. Um, speaking of back to the biological mm-hmm. question. Um, and, uh, and I thought, Oh my God, we're going to kill somebody. Uh, they're going to freeze to death. And one of them happened to be a friend of mine uh, who I'd gone to university with. So we had all these heaters set up, mm-hmm. but so that, but it ended up, the sun came out and, and it didn't rain. And I thought all their makeup would have run off too, if it had rained. I was, it was, it was like, so scary. Anyway, the other one was one a sea as a traveler's episode uh, in season two, I think, uh, where I had decided to uh, like a like a madman to shoot a, a skydiving episode, and literally devoted a, 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 a whole section uh, to the episode in the sky, shot with. I thought I, just, I wanted to do our producers off and said we can do this, right? And he went, yeah, I think we can do this. GoPros, uh, you know, and so the, the, the concept of the episode was a traveler was uh, arriving into the body of a skydiver. They didn't succeed in, into a mission, in their mission. And so we went back in time until just after that traveler and over and over and over again while the traveler was falling through the sky and basically sent new travelers into their host body. And so Amanda Tapping read the script and, and she directed the episode and she came into my office and I'd never seen an actor or director so frightened before because she was saying, so, um, Brad, you want me to direct this episode in the sky? And I went, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> she, she said, okay, okay, sure. Just want to make sure. And, uh, and it ended up working really, really well because of her amazing planning and because we found an actor who looked just like the stunt person and, and, but the, the, one of the reasons I was so scared uh, and, and it was so stressful and so risky was um, it, we shot it in the spring. And it, as you may know, Joe, rains a little here. And you can't jump out of the sky in the rain. It has to be sunny. And we were losing our lead actor to a pilot that she had uh, got with like a much larger show. And it was Friday. And we needed her to, to shoot these scenes. And we had to tie the skydiving stuff to her on the ground and thank god on our last available day the weather opened up and we were able to shoot the skydiving scenes and they ended up being magnificent because uh uh the sky was beautiful and and uh and i will never do that again the funny part so, is people kept so go ahead no i was just gonna ask so you said the final day do you mean that you would schedule it for that week and the weather was bad and you had to push keep pushing or and then and then you just happened to we get it on the last day she was available holy smokes that is a yeah that's a yeah, high wire we have four I windows of opportunity 
four windows of opportunity and uh, and the last window. Otherwise, I don't know what we would have done. I really, I, I don't know what we would have done. So don't do that, Joe, on your next show. I was, I, suffice it to say, I don't think I would do any uh, skydiving or uh, high acrobatic uh, scenes. My second question, uh, you being uh, practically the, the only guy I know who reads as much sci-fi as myself, uh, I want to throw out a question. Basically, if you were given the opportunity to adapt any, I won't even say sci-fi novel, any novel to the big screen, what would it be? Oh, good. You have carte blanche. Oh, I do, I do know. I do know. I have carte blanche. Okay. It's called Legacy of Hero. I think I made you read it. Yes, Larry Niven. I love it. Jerry Purnell. And it's a great novel, and it's a it's a it's it's dated, but I uh, but I think it's just got this fabulous twist in the middle of it uh, that that I love. Legacy of Hero. Joe, you you were the one who turned me on to the novel. What's the novel about the spiders? Children of Uh, uh, Children of Time. Yes, Uh, Adrian Tchaikovsky. Adrian Tchaikovsky. Terrific. There. there. I was trying to remember that earlier before you came on. Oh, yeah. Now there's a great. That's a great example of a of a book that I loved that I don't think would make a very good film uh, because uh, because of the time jumping and because uh, because of the you. I don't know. You could anthropomorphize spiders as well as he does. Mm-hmm. Uh, just by hearing their thoughts, you know? Yeah. I think yeah. you'd go, ah, and that would be that. Yeah, that's a good point. And a great answer. I thank yeah. you, sir. What I'm going to do is I'm going to log off so that I don't eat up your bandwidth, and I'm going to join the uh, chat and talk about you behind your back. <laughs> so thank you very much. <laughs> good to see you, buddy. <laughs> good to see you. Oh, now he's frozen, so I, I, I can't tell if uh, Brad's angry at me. So I will see you soon. One, one, if there, if you yeah. can stay on for one more minute, there's actually a question kind of for both of you from someone That's named Yoshida okay. Babies, which is, I always wondered this, how do you keep the scripts of the character over time when there are multiple writers? To be honest with you, on Dark Matter, I tended to do a pass on everything. And it's the same thing you did when we first joined uh, Stargate. I mean, for, for several seasons, um, I mean, we would all, the writers would all get in the room and... We would break the stories together. The outlines would go through all the writers, uh, particularly Brad and Robert, who would give their notes. Uh, and then we would go through the various drafts. And when the scripts were, we thought, perfect, then they would go to Brad and Robert and Brad and Robert would do their passes on the scripts to, to ensure essentially quality control. It's the same thing when I was on Dark Matter. I was a showrunner. Uh, all the scripts went through me. Okay, so... That's true, except when you have the ability, and as we and the the fortune, the good fortune that we did for as many years as we did, eventually you all start hearing and reading the same voice, right? So, yes, I did. I would do a pass uh, on on uh, on scripts early on, uh, but but you know by the time Paul and Joe were writing shows uh for uh, you know a year or whenever it was um the, the voice that came out of their typewriter was virtually the same as the one that came out of mine you know what i mean o'neill sounded like o'neill carter sounded like carter um at the very beginning you it's impossible for the showrunner not to do a big pass it's impossible i don't care i don't care how good a writer you are you 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 
you need it, it's quality control is a good way of putting it, but it's also it's it's also for the actor, so that the actor picks up a script and, and knows, yeah, that's my character, as opposed to I wouldn't say that, and and they might have said that had it the show been created by somebody else, but it wasn't. So <laughs> you have this on Travelers. I can only name like three or four scripts that I didn't do uh, a dialogue pass on. Um, and, and of course, the longer you go with writers, uh, the, the, the closer they're going to get because they can see the episodes. They, they can see the performer performing those, you know, those scenes and they hear the voice, they hear the character voice. And, and, and it would have happened by the way, had I, had I written the dark matter, same thing would have happened. Well, I, I tried to get you to write, uh, on Dark Matter, uh, uh, both seasons, but you were t- too busy. So, uh, you know, maybe next show. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. Joe, thank you so much. All right. See you guys later. See you, Joe. All right, Brad. So um, we're going to go now into some quick fire questions. I hope you're, hope you're ready. Whatever springs to mind, hopefully that... Um, I'm ready. These will be like kind of snappy. There's 10 of them that have been coming your way. Number one, what show should we all be watching right now? Ooh, great. Great question. Um, not science fiction at all. Ted Lasso. So good. So, so moving, so funny, so modern. Uh, fabulous writing. I just love that. I, I absolutely loved it. Uh, the crown. Uh, if you want to see money happening on a screen, watch the crown. That's, the it's crown. also brilliantly acted and written uh, travelers. You should watch travelers. If you haven't. <laughs> Most bingeable um, series on Netflix. So uh, if you couldn't write, what else would you do? Well, I started out as an actor and then I realized I was a far better writer. Uh, but, uh, my first, I mean, I was in a theater company, uh, for years, uh, in my twenties with my, uh, uh, with Debbie, who's, um, my wife and has been ever since we, we were in a touring theater company and, and, uh, you know, we wrote social action theater and, and we, uh, we acted in our little plays and, and it was, uh, it was fun and funny. And, and I kind of miss, I kind of miss the, the, the performance aspect of, of being on stage, um, I, I would be drawn to science. I'm just, uh, I, I wish I could, uh, be, uh, it's the math. I, I got, I just, the math just was too hard for me. So I ended up being able to, you know, write science fiction, uh, television, which was very lucky. All right. Five dinner guests, dead or alive. Who do you invite? Oh, Oh, that's too tough. <laughs> uh, uh, do I have to have five? Uh, 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 I don't know. <laughs> I really, li- I'd like to meet uh, Barack Obama. Uh, I really, I, th- I just think he would be great. I'd like to golf. Th- I th- you know what? My perfect foursome. I don't even know if they all golf. Uh, uh, Jake Tapper, uh, Barack Obama, just, just those guys. They would be, I just think yes. they're so fun and so smart. And uh, uh, I, I'd like to have dinner with Scalzi. Uh, I, I've never had dinner with him. He's a, he's a funny, smart guy, but that's something that I could actually possibly do sometime when the, when the pandemic is over. I, I don't, I don't have a lot of uh, fantasy about stuff like that. I'm uh, I'm a little more practical. <laughs> yeah. I could okay. tell you the five golf courses I, I would like to play. I would love to play Augusta. I'd love to play Cyprus. I'm kidding. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Uh, here's a silly one. Uh, pineapple on pizza. 
Oh no. What's what is wrong with you? Why would you even ask that question? <laughs> no. Okay. Uh, who won the fight? Uh, Ronan uh, or Teal'c, I guess. Oh, they're still at it. They're still at it. They're, they're, they're like, uh, one gets knocked down and the other one turns to the other one gets up again and does one of these. That's, that's how that goes. <laughs> I'd like to write that. actually. <laughs> no, they're, um, uh, if you, they're, 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 if you write it, they're we'll animate it. Yeah. You, if you write it, we'll animate okay. it. No problem. We'll put it up. There. <laughs> um, if the world was going to end in 24 hours, and you're the only one who knows this. What's the first thing you do? I don't know. That's a good, I mean, the, the only thing I think of when you say that is I wrote that I, I wrote, uh, I wrote an, uh, uh, an episode of the outer limits called in constant moon. Uh, it was actually a Larry Niven short story that I read where, um, uh, and this isn't an answer to your question, but I'm going to tell, answer it this way anyway. Uh, I just read it, and it was so moving. It, it was uh, about a, a guy who looks at a at a moon in constant moon. It's a line from uh, Romeo and Juliet, and he and he and he sees that it's it's so bright and it's brilliantly bright, and he goes, "Wow, look at that!" And he phones somebody he knows who, who he kind of likes and is sort of flirting with, and and uh, and then it it sinks in. Oh my God. If this, there's only one light source in the solar system, and if the moon is brighter, it's reflecting off the sun, the sun must have gone nova. And they're on the dark side. So when the Earth rotates back around again, they're doomed. And so he, he, he asks her out, and he takes her on a date, and, and, uh, and then they end up fighting for their lives. Uh, because it wasn't, it wasn't a, a nova, it was just a severe flare. What a beautiful story. I had to write it. I had to turn it into an Outer Limits episode. Uh, I actually got to to ask Larry Niven about it. I changed it in ways I didn't want to, but again, the the, the network and the studio, I was it was new, so I had to do what they said. But uh, yeah, that's my answer to that. In constant <laughs> okay. moon. Um, thoughts on the Lost season fin- or series finale? Carl Binder, who's a who I've known for thirty years, and who he and I did a show. We're the only writers on a show called Neon Rider way, way back, my very first job. He's not a sci-fi guy, but I knew he would be able to bring the heart element uh, of writing into the show. So I brought him into Stargate, uh, I think it's season four or five. And uh, and he he wrote all the way into universe. So he was he ended up being with us uh, as, as in our writer's room and an executive producer on the show. And, a, and a, he's a showrunner in his own right, of course. And ended up writing, I think, the best uh, SGU uh, that we made, epilogue. Um but he loved Lost. He loved the series. And I watched the pilot in a couple of episodes. And I, and I said to him, you know, you have lunch at the writer's room. And I said, uh, buddy, this show, there's no, there's no plan. There's, they're just making shit up. I'm telling you right now. And he went, no, 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 no. I, I, you can see that they're, you know, they're, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. No, 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 there's no, there's just pieces everywhere. There's no puzzle. And, and, and he, he, so I didn't watch the finale, but I remember the day he watched the finale and I remember the day he walked in and I said, well, and he went, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> I, I apparently was right. Uh, there was no plan. Uh, I do love that music cue though. And it's on my, I, when I'm right, I listen to uh, soundtracks and, and that final music cue from Lost is beautiful. It's just very, very good. Here's another show. Thoughts on the the sad cancellation of Firefly. There's an example of a, a network not seeing what they have. I, I kind of understand what they were afraid of because uh, I watched the first episode that they put up and went, 
how was that a pilot? I don't get it. Turns out it wasn't. They aired them out of order. Um, I didn't realize that until afterwards. And then I think it was Robert or Paul or Joe or both or all. And, and they said, Brad, give it a chance. It's really good. And I, and I ended up watching them all uh, on uh, one summer, I think after it was canceled. And I, uh, it's so good. The acting is so great. It, the, the, it's, it's a shame. It should have had, it should have had multiple seasons and it was, you know, it's a shame. You know, that's how lucky we were. We, we, I don't think if we were in the same position in a, in a million years, would, would SG1 have gotten past episode five or six? I mean, we, we, you know, I, I think fondly of the season as a whole, but we've had some dogs in there early on. And, um, you know, I, I, um, if we were under the same, uh, uh broadcast network microscope that that firefly was on uh, under uh i think we would have been in trouble so you know uh, obscurity can give you a long life <laughs> <laughs> not that we you know we ultimately ultimately ended up being a pretty big hit but but uh uh it, i you know what i'm saying it, it, it was it, it's a shame firefly was great mm. okay um last quick fire question who would you like to see at our next AMA? But whoever you say, you got to help us get them. Joe, Narain, uh, John Scalzi. Uh, there's lots of folks who, who would be better at this than me. Uh, but uh, um, uh, pro- you know who would be really fun? Because she's so uh, uh, witty and, and, uh, and charming and, and lovely, Amanda Tapping. And I will ask her. She, she's great. Do, do, do uh, an AMA with Amanda. That'd be incredible. That'd be great. It'd be really nice to her. I'll kill you. <laughs> oh yeah, no, she's, she's so great. <laughs> okay. Um, well, it's almost uh, time is almost up, Brad. Do you do you have a few more minutes, or do you want to play sure, one more I can, game? I could. I, I could. Yeah. Sure, we could do another thing if you have something ready. I, I'm. Yeah, we got something really silly for you, which is uh, we're going to find out which sg one character you are. I think Tommy's going to queue up some questions, and then he's going to do some kind of like brain thing going on okay um but oh dear oh no able to see that (laughs) are you able to see that choose the word that appeals to you most power culture loyalty peace duty justice peace the alien race threatens to destroy your planet what do you do left menacingly and destroy okay that's funny uh uh order an attack and remove yourself from combat not so no Fight the enemy to the death. Evacuate your people and stay behind to defend their exit. Uh, strategize with others the best way to proceed. Get everyone to someplace safe and fast. Uh, evacuate your people and stay behind to defend their exit. You're traveling to an unknown planet. Which do you? Which of these do you take to defend yourself? Staff weapon. Not a Zadkin. Uh, good old nine millimeter. No weapon, they invite violence. You find a stone with strange markings. Your first instinct is to take the stone. It may hold some kind of power, scan for radiation, attempt to translate the markings yourself. (laughs) Uh, Talk to somebody who you could translate the markings. Leave the stone where it is. It's between uh, the the last two. Uh, Talk to somebody who could translate the markings. Scan it for radiation. I don't have that ability. Uh, which of the following uh, 
would you do to live longer? Anything it takes, mostly anything, as long as I can stay myself. Well, I, I have to say three. Have, I would have my mind transplanted into a clone body. Sure, I would. Why wouldn't I? Uh, can I be taller? Can I ask for that? Uh, you discover a new alien civilization. Your first instinct is to attempt to make peaceful contact. I suppose it's just being taken by your enemy. How do you react? Destroy your enemy's home planet? No. Wage full-scale war and attempt to recover your spouse. Quest to help. I, I, I'm going to say uh, strategize with others to figure out the best way to proceed. Because I, I don't have spaceship, so I, I'm kind of stuck on my own. Which is your favorite color out of the following options? Going to go with black. Odd. That's <laughs> not a color. Uh, that's how I dress most of the time. Uh, a mugger approaches you in an alley and demands your wallet at gunpoint. What do you do? See, I'm scrappy. I'm going to say... Uh, reason with the man. I'm going to say reason with the man of those choices. Powerful worship with tons of weapons and stuff. Oh, wait, what's, what's the best form of transportation? Whatever it takes to get me where I'm going quickest. That's my answer. How long is this quiz, Lawrence? <laughs> yeah, how long? How long? 27,000 <laughs> questions. <laughs> But if, if, if it weren't illegal, which of these crimes would you commit? <sighs> Punch the vice president in the face. That's out of character, I know. <laughs> it's just, just the times. Just the times. <laughs> Somebody you loved just died. What would you do? Get really mad. Crime controllably. Go somewhere quiet to reflect. Attempt to help the family or the person for as long as I can. Do some attempt to help the family. It's pretty obvious. Criminating photos of the president with the woman. <laughs> Can I skip this question? Uh, hasn't this already happened? Um, hide the photos. No. Exploit the opportunity. No. Throw the photos away. No. Burn the photos. No. Uh... I'm going to say, turn the photos over to military personnel, because that's a bizarre option. <laughs> what is your favorite animal? Shark, panther, bear, worm, dog, monkey, <laughs> parrot, bald eagle, dog, dog, dog guy. <laughs> Who would say, okay, firefly, finally, <laughs> it's very small type on my iPad, finally, which word best describes you? I don't know. That's not fair. I don't want to say any of those. Uh, uh, I guess the best answer is awkward. Uh, do, you, do you have a guess on who you, who you might end up being? Or, or I, I got to be Daniel. I must be, be Daniel. Daniel? Okay. Thor! So <laughs> I <for> <laughs> see that one coming well i didn't oh, see that one funny. coming do you know who played thor do you know who was thor the voice of i do i do Michael yeah. the character you thought you were gonna be <laughs> yeah he loved doing it too it was great 
Yeah, yeah. My favorite, cool. my favorite line of Thor's was, "Hopefully, it will be the last of the footwear to fall." Yeah, the shoe drop. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, so that was fun, Lawrence. Thank you, guys. I hope uh, it was uh, uh, not a root canal for anybody. Uh, I uh, we the, the technical problem was probably on my end, but uh, um, uh, I hope you could hear me, and it was fine. So uh, thank you very much. It was fun. Oh, no, thanks no, to thank Joe and Lorraine for coming on. Oh yeah, yeah, that was really great. And um, yeah, no, thank you, thank you, thank. To be honest, all of the members who showed up and asked all the questions, there was, there's so many that we couldn't get through. Uh, that you know, I've been scrolling through whether it was in in the comments or previously. So I'll send them over to you, Brad. Well, if you yeah, want to take a look I'll, at them. I'll, at any uh, point, maybe I can answer uh, some more online. Also, you know, guys, I have to say, I think the companion is a great idea, and and I really enjoyed writing my essay, and I and I look forward to writing more. And uh, I really, I I think that um, I think that you're onto something really cool. So, uh, fingers crossed for bigger things. Yeah, thank no, thank you. And um, yeah, if you have any other final thoughts, Brad, it's over to you. Otherwise, uh, you know, thanks to everyone else for coming. Thank you, guys. Bye, everybody. Okay. Take care. Hi there. This is Chief Master Sergeant Walter Harriman, your favorite gatekeeper. Have you ever wondered what it takes to become a certified Stargate technician? Well, now you can find out because I'm going to share my knowledge and experience with a select group of aspiring and enthusiastic gators. I want to give you a chance to be a hero, too. That's why I'm happy to announce that on March 11th, I'll be taking a small number of students for my class, Gate Tech 101. Tickets are on sale now at thecompanion.app slash events. You won't want to miss this because it's not just a Stargate Master class. It's a Stargate Chief Master Sergeant class. See you there. But for now, Chevron 7 is locked.